So let's get started. There, there's been a lot of changes in the uh, Condominium Act, as well as the statutes for homeowners associations and cooperatives, to a much lesser extent. Most of the changes are mainly affecting condominium associations under 718. And the first area I want to talk about are criminal penalties. And uh, the legislature has chosen to uh, put some criminal penalties for certain behaviors by directors, officers, or property managers. And the first of that is forgery or forgery of a ballot or a voting certificate that's part of an election. And it now says that that's punishable as a third degree felony uh, under the penalties of theft or embezzlement. And if some of you aren't familiar with, with criminal law, a third degree felony is punishable up to five years in jail. Or, or prison. So it's, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of shocking to, to see that in the statute that you can now be prosecuted by the state attorney for something like that happening where somebody alleges that, where the state attorney has alleged that you have forged or altered a uh, voting certificate or ballot. The second er area is access to records. And I think this area we'll see, and I think a lot of attorneys, uh, other attorneys, think this will generate a lot of work. The statute now says that destruction, the destruction or refusal to permit access to the records within, that's the association's official records, within following a request within the prescribed time frames is also subject to a penalty of a third degree fel felony prosecuted by the state attorney. Um, and so that's, that leaves a lot of room open uh, whether it, it rises to criminal intent or not, that would probably be up to the state, of attorney, state attorney, but I think the take home with that, and I've got these uh, community association management practice pointers that you'll see in, in your outline is, and it's called CAMP, just a coincidence that it's the same thing as this organization, uh, is that if you get a records request, start the paper trail early. The statute's unchanged with regards to the timing that you have to respond to a records request. When you get the records request, you have to provide access to the records within five days. Now, one thing else that the statute adds is that uh, if an association does not provide the, or excuse me, this has always been in the statute, that there's a rebuttable presumption that the association has refused access to the records if it goes 10 days without providing the owner or authorized representative access to the records. And what that means, the word rebuttable presumption or the phrase means that the association, in short, has a, a real uphill battle to prove that they did not violate the statute and that they, in fact, did provide access it means that uh, the association is suddenly, or the property manager or the officer or director, is suddenly placed in the position of having to introduce facts showing that the uh, accuser is wrong. And so you don't want to be in that situation where, there, where you've gone 10 days and it, it certainly can make the whole process more complex. Do you think the criminal penalty begins after the fifth day or after the tenth day? I don't think, I think it could do both. I think if it goes ten days, it certainly would make it easier to prosecute. But if it's five days, but you're in the window between five and ten, do you think that's a crime? I think it could be because it's still a violation of the statute. But I really don't, do I, I'm not sure about the, that. Um, the documents and certified mail or is it just an email? No, it's just a written request. Right, it, 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 and I get that frequently. I'll get an email forwarded to me by an association that says, Seth, is this, is this a records request? And I'd say it is. And if you have doubt that the person making the, making the request is authorized to make that request, or if the records they're requesting might not be subject to, to disclosure, such as something that's subject to attorney-client privilege or a record associated with an employee, uh, consult your attorney immediately, but don't get caught in a bind where, being, where you're tardy on a records request. If you acknowledge the request,
past and say it's in the process? Have you met the requirement of the law even though you may go past the 10 days? No, I don't think you have. I think you, uh, I think you have to proactively, in my opinion, and Sonia Jay and or Frank, uh, or Laura can chime in, that I think the best thing to do is say, is say once you determine that this is a valid written request, is say, yes, we are prepared to comply with your request within five days. Please get back with us with a time and date you would like to review the records or offer them a few times and That's dates. What I meant. You're yeah. acknowledging their request. You're acknowledging their request, but what I thought she meant is just simply saying, I got your email, I'm working on it. I don't think that's quite enough. It actually requires you to give them the records to inspect within those 10 days or within the five days. So what's, when you get these requests in to review the official records, it's so important that you start on this immediately because your response time is very limited. Just because it, you were out of the office and it's been you know a couple of days and you've missed it, you, you have to get the ball rolling sending the email and you can either let them know, like Seth said, please give us a couple days and times that work for you or here are some days and times that work for us for you to come in, but you only have that window within the statute. I wanted to um, point out kind of as a precursor this House Bill 1237 came about for two reasons. One of the reasons is because there was a grand jury down in South Florida. We talk about Miami-Dade County as the Wild West when it comes to any area of law, let alone community association law. And there were such flagrant violations of this provision of election procedures that the legislature had people working on this bill to actually change these laws so much to make it so draconian. The initial proposed bill on the violation of the official records inspection provision was to allow for a penalty of $500 per day. Thank goodness that didn't pass. Can you imagine what kind of bill your associations could have if that actually passed? But that's what was proposed, and it was looking like that could be something we were stuck with. Thank goodness it got changed and amended before the final bill was actually um, sent before the governor for approval. But the other thing is most of these bills that we're looking at today, neither one of them, both 1237 and 398, were drafted by community association attorneys or anyone in the community association industry. The estoppel bill, and I'm not trying to jump ahead, was drafted by the title company um, lobbyists. This sort of bill was drafted because of the flagrant violations that were happening both in South Florida and in Poinciana, which is the biggest homeowners association in the state of Florida. So it's because of those cause and effect. We, all the attorneys in this room, we are a part of an organization where we work together. It's under the Real Property Probate and Trust Law Committee of the Florida Bar, where we meet and we talk about the legislation, we help draft it, and all of these attorneys volunteered, hey, let us help you with the drafting. But what we ended up with, and that you'll see as we get through today, is a lot of this legislation <coughs> is ambiguous, it's, it's uncharted waters, not only because it's new, but because a lot of it doesn't really make sense. So I just wanted to throw that out there before you went too sure. far down the rabbit hole. I have a couple of questions on this. Okay. Um, in the way that the statute has read in the past, and I'm presuming from what I have seen that it reads substantially similar, substantially similar, I'm not an attorney, I can't interpret it, okay, is that, um, is that, that we have to provide access. It doesn't mean that I have to go to my back room and make copies of everything that's in there. And of course, we're, we can give them up to 25 pages and all that stuff. That's all stayed the same, yes? That's right. Okay, so when I hear the word access, I think, thank you for your document request. Our office hours are this. We have an open door policy. If you want to come by, please call and schedule appointment at your convenience and come and see whatever you want to see. And then the answer that I get is, well, I'm in Minnesota and I just want you to send all of the records to me. Well, what does all mean? How do you respond to that, number one? Number two, I have told them they can come to my office, which is within the 45 miles of the association, and view the official records at a time that is during the office hours operation, I'll even extend them if necessary for them. Um, so the first question is, what does all mean? Two, if I'm providing them access during normal operating hours or even extending those, does that qualify as this? And the third question is, 
does the provision that we can charge an administrative fee or limit the volume of time that they are in the office to prevent them from disrupting operations? I had a board president three years ago that literally spent three full days in my office and disrupted all operations for three days, looking through 20 boxes. Well, when that happens, you need to exercise the provision in the statute. If that's happening on a regular basis, that allows you allows the board to make rules and regulations governing records requests, and you can do that. I have associations do it all the time, and have their attorney help you craft those. Uh, your second question, what was all. that? All. <laughs> that, that, that was your first, I think, all. Okay, all. Uh, providing access to the office during office hours and asking them to set an appointment to come in. That suffices. That suffices? Yes. Okay. You don't have to mail no. stuff to people. Exactly. Okay. And one last question because this sounds like you can get in a lot of trouble. I have some boards of directors, I'm thinking of one in particular, um, that they do things, even though we tell them, we coach them on what the statute says they should do, they do whatever they're going to do anyway, okay? And I say, by the way, I know you did this XYZ construction project and that sort of thing, and I know you have bids for all this. I need those in the office as part of the official record. And somebody comes and they say, I want to see all the official records, bids and everything, everything that qualifies as an official record for XYZ project. And I have talked to my board 50 times and have it documented in writing. You need to get this in here. You need to get this in here because we're going to be in trouble if somebody asks me for this right. and I don't have it. How far does the CAM need to go to protect themselves if the board simply refuses to make those records available? Well, my advice is the same. Keep the paper trail. Instead of phone calls of, of asking them to do this, send an email and keep that email so you can demonstrate that you've done everything you can to recommend to the board that they get these records in the official records because they're part of the official records and they're supposed to be there. And you know that's that's about all you can do. But so you can eliminate what attorneys hate. And what what often makes cases ex expensive, in my experience, is when you, you have he said she said things, and something in writing suddenly makes that disappear. So uh, my advice is the same as far as starting the paper trail or early with the records request. The same goes for the CAM and and the board member who you think is not complying with the law. Keep the paper trail going. Now moving on, an additional penalty that if you're charged, if a director, officer, or <coughs> excuse me, not a manager in this case, if an officer or director is charged by the state attorney with forgery of a, of a ballot or voting certificate or charged with violating the access to records, uh, statute, then they have to immediately be removed from office. Not a conviction, just charged. And so that's, that's pretty harsh. Uh, and then, furthermore, the association then has to have an election, a, a full-blown election, to fill that vacancy. And as most of you know, in most governing documents, if a vacancy is created by a resignation or a death or something like that, the existing board simply appoints another board member to, to fill that spot for the duration of the term. Moving on, uh, the next area where there's potential criminal penalties is kickbacks. There's now a provision in the statute that <coughs> states that kickbacks are prohibited. So, right, that comes at no, as no surprise. So, you know, it's probably not a big deal. You shouldn't be doing that anyway, and I think that would automatically constitute a problem. Uh, so, for example, you can't have a property manager um, have some secret agreement that the, that the association isn't involved with uh, saying, um, I'll get this attorney or, or this painter, Ryan, uh, <laughs> hired in, in, in return for a little bit of money back to the property manager. 
And it goes without saying that that would be improper. And in any case, there's now criminal penalties attached to that. In addition, uh, it's subject to administrative penalties by the DVPR, um, including cease and desist orders, restitution orders, uh, and other civil penalties. Um, the next section that's kind of interesting that's also subject to criminal penalties are debit cards. And this is a confusing part of the statute. It's under 718.111.15. Subsection A states, as clear as can be, that the use of debit cards for payment of association expenses is prohibited. I, I can't explain that. I'm not sure what the reason for that. But sub, subsection B does go on to say that the use of a debit card for any expense that is not a lawful obligation of the association may be criminally prosecuted as credit card fraud. So we don't really know if the legislature kind of meant that the, to say that the use of debit cards is prohibited unless the expense is a lawful obligation of the association. But the fact is, that section doesn't say it. And so we're you know, left in a quandary with that. Um, I don't know if the other attorneys have any comments on that, but I, so are you saying uh, no I, card that's card what it says. Card? That's what the statute no, says. Credit cards. Right, it doesn't, but for that's a, correct. for the time being, it may at some point in time, but the bank was ready just to shut everybody down, and I had sent our bank representative what the attorney had sent me, because that was the game plan for the bank, was just all association cards would be shut off. Yeah. I just called all of my clients that had debit cards, and I said, cut them up today. <laughs> the only just logic that I can up. see in the idea behind this was that with the debit card, it's money coming directly out of a bank account, where if you do find there's because clearly there's an element of fraud throughout this whole thing, that someone's using the debit card for improper purposes. With a credit card, you can call in and say, stop every single charge and try to reverse and, and go through the process of disputing that. But outside of that, the, the language itself, that's a separate issue. But I think that was the, the, maybe the idea behind it. Well, what stops an association from, from writing a paper check? Yeah. Which is coming right out of a bank account. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it yeah. makes no sense, in my That's opinion. That's when you talk to your CPA yeah. and have proper checks but we'll see, and Right. <laughs> we'll see how that turns out. Um, the next area is service on the board and recalls. Uh, there's been a provision added under 718.112 that now limits board members from serving four two-year terms. That's all the statute says unless it's waived, unless that term limit is waived by two-thirds of the voting interests. Now, what's confusing a lot of attorneys is, well, what about eight one-year terms? Right. At least that's confusing to me. I, I think it's allowed. It's not, it's not prohibited. That's kind of my thinking, too. The literal language, it's only addressing staggered boards with two-year terms. Interesting, doesn't say what about three-year terms. I have a board I talked to today that has three-year terms one-third each come on yeah. and off, and it doesn't address three-year terms or one-year terms. Yeah. But now this says, or there are not enough candidates to fill the board positions. That's so true. So if you have five board positions, and you've got five candidates, and every one of them has served for the last 10 years, it's fine. That's right. right. No one Definitely. If nobody else is running. Okay. That's correct. Because that would be, that would really cause some problems with some clients. But even if they're running, and they go out for a vote, and they get voted in those same five for 10 years. I'm assuming yeah. that's still legal. Assuming that you get two yeah. thirds of the voting interest, yep. right? Yeah. Only if we get the two thirds. If, if the two thirds so, so remember, it. this is for a condo. So a condo, you're going to have someone submitting their intent to be a candidate. So you'll know if you don't have enough candidates, then obviously those people that have already been are now eligible to be on the ballot. But Should let's we? say you got six in, that's where the quandary comes in. Mm -hmm. So if we got six, but all those other five have now served for two-year terms. 
what do we do among those people? Is there a runoff to determine which of the four can run? Because we only have one non-person who's eligible. I think that's, those are the type of issues that they didn't, they should have come to people who deal right. with this every day. So but do we need to put that on our intent to be a candidate form when we mail those out with the first notice? That, by the way? Couldn't hurt. I agree with that. Uh, I agree with Jay. It couldn't hurt. If the board member's been on, they've been elected for five two-year terms, they're coming up to the next election. Just go back and say you've already exceeded this amount and you can't run? We, I think we all start agree. from July 1st? We, we talked we about this, agree. yeah. Um, Seth and I talked about it yesterday. I don't know if Jay does, but um, from that condo HOA group that we're a part of with attorneys, I think we all agree that it starts July 1st, 2017 forward. So the new term starting July right. 1st, 2017. So even if they've served six and now they're running again, this would start the clock over for right. everyone because it just wouldn't be fair. Because what if you have people who have been on the board for 10 years with five two-year terms, can't just say, oh, you're next, you're off the board all of a sudden as of July 1st. There's a constitutional issue right. whether it can be applied retroactively, and that's something you're going to be hearing, if not a lot today, you're going to be hearing about it all the time for how many years yeah. to come. Yeah. Is this the sort of thing that some disgruntled homeowner that just does not like Gary and doesn't want him, I'm picking on you because you're on the other side of the room. Um, is, can, is this something that some disgruntled homeowner is going to put in a complaint with DeBeeper that Gary has served for 10 years yes, starting July 1st, 2017. So he's already served eight. This is going to be his ninth and 10th year for the next two years. And we're complaining because this is a violation of the statute and it's going to tie up DB yeah. and we'll have to get an attorney to defend yeah. it. Yeah, could could very well. Yeah. It's going to happen. And I think you're also going to see what Jay brought up about the, because yeah. see some, I mean, we see it all the time, people making their own interpretations of statutes on the one year that they have a total of eight that they can do now. Right. So you're going to see, well, they've been in there for you know 20 years at the same board, keep rolling over for one year term. You know, and fairly and quickly, I think we'll see the arbitration decisions come down and then people might even appeal those and we might even see some court decisions if they appeal those arbitration decisions. So, you know, it'll work itself out. But it, um, but unfortunately, it's going to make the state of Florida busier and it's going to make attorneys busier and uh, cost associations more money. Um, and just keep in mind, most everything I'm talking about is in the con today will be in the condominium act and at the end of this presentation I will let you know what changes applied again to homeowners associations so and there weren't too many so a, a lot of the HOA changes didn't make it um, real quick on service on boards there was an addition to the statute on cooperatives that uh, tracked what's already in the Condominium Act, uh, prohibiting co-owners from simultaneously serving on the board of directors unless you have a condominium um, with less than 10 units, or if there are not enough, uh, excuse me, or unless there aren't enough candidates to fill the board. Um, Going to recall of board members, uh, there's been a pretty big change in that. And w what they did is they eliminated the certification step of recalls. And as many of you may know, if a majority of unit owners, if a unit owner or a group of unit owners can show that, that a majority of unit owners are in favor of recalling <coughs> one or more board members, then they can do that for without cause. And under the previous statute, the, the Board of Directors had five days to have a meeting where they would certify, decide to certify that recall. In other words, agree with it and just the, the board members would step down and they'd go on their merry way and we'd be done. Or not certify it. Not certifying. And the process for not certifying it was very specific under arbitration decisions at least. It said that the board should sit down and at least specify why, exactly why, in writing, uh, why they are rejecting a ballot. And I thought that was a good exercise for boards. I thought it was excellent, and it saved everyone a lot of work and grief. Well, now, that step of certification has been, been eliminated. And instead, if there's, if somebody, if a unit owner comes forward 
and shows that a majority of unit owners have voted in favor, that board member being recalled or a group of bo board members is supposed to, to, to sim simply step down and then they have 10 days to turn over records and control. And if they disagree with it, then they can file a petition for arbitration, for recall arbitration, meaning the board member that was recalled. If the board member refuses to step down that was recalled, then also a petition for arbitration can be filed by the other side. So um, I think that was a mistake in my opinion so to, to eliminate the certification. Excuse me? No, in a recall, you're supposed to actually, the, if a member is seeking to recall a board member, in that recall form, they're supposed to have another candidate already there to take their place. Assuming it's a majority recall. Yes. If it's a minority number, which is less than half, let's say two out of five, then the board fills a vacancy. If it's three or more in that example, Good point, then yeah. you have to take that additional step. Good point, yeah. Um, moving on, there's now a, a separate heading entitled Conflicts of Interest. So the legislature was really keen on this. Uh, the, fr the first conflict of interest is now it's codified that an association cannot hire an attorney that represents the association's management company. And I kind of thought that was a bad idea before the statute was passed, and I think most attorneys did. So, but now it's in the statute. Uh, they've also added a provision on hiring service providers, and it now prohibits associations that are not timeshares, at least, from employing or contracting with any service provider that is owned or operated by a board member or with any person who has a financial relationship with that board member or officer or a familial relationship within the third degree of Kensang Guinity. Thank you, Rich. And now, now, so I believe that includes great-grandparents, aunts and uncles, nieces and nephews, great-grandchildren, grandparents, brothers and sisters-in-laws, and grandchildren-in-laws. So so some you can't hire those service providers and again I think it goes without saying it's possible that e e even before that statute that provision was added it was probably a bad idea to hire uh, a service provider with a connection to the board member um, another addition was on purchasing units at foreclosure sales uh, except for timeshares again it says board members managers management companies or, or service providers are now <coughs> prohibited from purchasing units at foreclosure sales. And I used to get this question fairly frequently and I always recommended that board members not do that. Uh, it just invites problems. Um, the, I have a question sure. about the um, higher, uh, engage, uh, contracting with someone who's related. Yep. The statute previously provided, if I, unless I'm wrong, that you can hire a board member's company or a board member if you do certain disclosures. Right. That wasn't taken out, I don't think. Or was and it? that's in 617. <clears throat> that, uh, I believe it's in 617. I think 718 also has a provision as well under 3026. If it's, to, if it's dis and disclosed. I and I didn't, but how does that square with this? Well, this says no, and the other one says yes, if. Well, 718.3027 was added, and it now says directors or officers and their relatives must disclose activities that could reasonably be construed as a conflict. And if the conflict is not disclosed, then the contract is voidable or terminates with written notice. So maybe that addresses your question. Okay. So, but that just confuses me. It says you can't do it. It says if you do it, and you don't disclose it, then you can void it. And so you're basically saying if you no, but the, the previous provision that we talked about before deals with familial relationships. Say you have a friend, a close friend, 
or a roommate that you live with. And I think that's where that's covered in 718.3027, that it's probably not a good idea to not disclose. And I think with the friend example, I think it would be proper to disclose, for instance, this is my best friend for 20 years, or he did, this is my roommate, and I think so you know, we should hire him. Going back to the sophistication, board president owns a landscape company has been maintaining the property for five years while it's effective July 1st. No, in fact, I'll read you, I brought the statute with me. If a director or an officer, a relative of a director or an officer, proposes to engage in an activity that is a conflict of interest, as described in subsection one, the proposed activity must be listed on and all contracts and transactional documents related to the proposed activity must be attached to the meeting agenda. If the board votes against the proposed activity, the director, officer, or relative must notify the board in writing of his or her intention not to pursue the proposed activity or to withdraw from office. If the board finds that an officer or director has violated the subsection, then the officer or director shall be deemed removed from office vacancy shall be filled according to general law. So subsection one allows the association to enter into contracts with um, directors and officers as long as the conflict of interest is disclosed to the board and then going further in the other section, all of those contracts can be voidable. So I think maybe what's confusing as your excerpt says prohibits, it's, it's frowns upon frowned upon in subsection 3A, but it's not prohibited, or sorry, 3, 3B. Would this include owners as well if they have a business? Should the board not try to deal with that owner? I think it's a bad idea, but but no, it doesn't include owners. No. Well, they could be friends, too. <laughs> yeah. That's why I think I, uh, I just had that question come up yesterday, and I... Cut the friend I, off. Yeah, I think it's, yeah. Yeah, there you go. Okay. Um, Another thing that was added is, again, we get back to rebuttable presumptions and that statute on conflicts of interest. It, it, it now codifies and says right in the statute that a rebuttable presumption that a conflict exists if uh, the director officer or relative of that director or officer enters into a contract with the association, holds an interest in the business conducting business for the association, uh, or proposes to enter into the contract or other transaction with the association. So again, you've got a rebuttable uh, <coughs> presumption that'll be hard to overcome what if that if happens. If the board member's son-in-law works for the association? If the board member's son-in-law works for the association, I think that's a bad idea. A yes, and, and it's a conflict. I won't go there. <laughs> Sure. Is that limited only to the association foreclosure on the property? Because we're pretty privileged in mortgage foreclosure. Yes, I should have clarified that. Yeah. That relates to only association lien foreclosure. So if you're dealing with a mortgage foreclosure, we're not okay. going down there. But I'd be careful of that, too. I mean, I have a lot of associations that get involved in mortgage foreclosures and, and affect them affect the speed in which they, you know, they, they move forward. So that's something to think about. And, and I would advise an association, if you have doubt, to consult with the attorney. Well, I know as a realtor that, you know, if you're going to go into contract, you normally state a real, my name, a realtor, you know, that you let people disclose in your contract if you can as much information about how you, you know, so they know who they're dealing with. I think it's a good practice, yeah. Yeah, that's good. Um, hitting real briefly on suspension of voting rights, this was added to 718.303 subsection 5. Um, it used to be that if an owner was delinquent in any monetary obligation, you could suspend their voting rights. Now it says it's got to be $1,000, at least $1,000 to, sus to uh, suspend the voting rights. Now I get this a lot. I'll get associations asking me, well, we have fined this person. They have some outrageous amount of fines built up for different violations. We want to suspend their voting rights. And as a community association management practice pointer, I'd be careful of that because I would first make sure that the fine was properly levied. Uh, you can ask your attorney about that. And 
I would also see, you know, check to see if whether the owner is disputing the underlying basis for the fine. Sometimes the violations are not that clear cut. And I'll get associations that come to me, and in fact, and I'll say, what are these fines for? And they're really kind of questionable as far as whether there was an actual violation of the governing documents. And it might have even been documented that, that the owner did dispute it. So be careful of suspending voting rights and think of the pros and cons and what you're really getting out of that by suspending somebody's voting rights. It might not be worth it. And something else about fines, <clears throat> I'm not a fan of them and a lot of subject matters like leasing and gas and vehicles and children, no fine or a pets, no fine is going to get compliance. I look at a fine as a combination of procedure, did you follow the procedures, and would you have won the case in court? That's kind of how I look at it. So let's assume you go after Mrs. Smith's pet, but there's 10 similar pets elsewhere in the community. You find this person in court, that's selective enforcement. Do you think you can then make that fine stick to let that person not vote? I think the fines are a trap for everybody in this room that thinks it's so easy just to have a blinders on and just hit the person with a fine. Yeah. Is that the, only for fines or is that also HOA dues? Because I thought if they were more than three months past due on their HOA fees. This doesn't apply to HOA, it's just condos. But no, I mean, I'm right. sorry, condos. You, okay. Yeah, that's correct. And then we can suspend their, because some of that- If that's clear, right. Right. Well, then their that voting rights stay intact. Yeah. And then there's a waiting period, according to the third, of what you have in your outline, yeah. Seth, that you can't that's just right. send a letter and saying, effective upon your receipt of this letter, you can't vote. You have to, there's a 30 day wait, and, and I don't know what proof of the obligation means. It doesn't say. So, I'm not sure either. So now the statute used to just say for condos, more than a thousand, more than 90 days delinquent. Now it says more than a thousand and more than 90 days delinquent. So even if the thousand was less than 90 days, you still can't um, suspend their voting rights for those amounts until it gets to the 90 day mark yeah. and a thousand. So you have to meet both thresholds now. And this is for condos. So for HOAs, it would still be the 90 days because that didn't get changed out of the statute in the HOA Act. So let me get this straight, if I could, Sonia. What we have to do is wait until this obligation of $1,000 that we can substantiate is 90 days old. Then we send them a letter saying you're going to have your voting, voting. rights suspended. But In they 30 have days. 30 days. No, no, no. You have, a board, you have a board meeting. The well, board, that's what I mean. The board. And then the board lev levies the suspension, then the letter goes out. So it could be as much as almost 145 days by the time you get done with it, because you've got 90 days before you can even declare that this is a voting rights thing, and then you have to have a board meeting, and then 30 days after the letter goes out. So we're talking much more than 90 days, is that correct? It could be less because it says proof of such obligation must be provided to the unit owner or member 30 days before <coughs> such suspension takes effect. So if you've already sent them a letter telling them that they owed the $1,000 or whatever the amount was over 1000 once that becomes 90 days, you've fulfilled the obligation under that portion of the statute. So it becomes critical for the management company or the board to make sure that these kind of notices go out at, say, the 60-day mark no later than 60 days, or rather no earlier, whatever, right around the 60-day mark so that right around the 90-day mark the board can vote to suspend them. Is but, that right? But do you have to, is the 30-day provision once the suspension is levied? No. Or could you, so you can actually say, we're going to do this, give them the proof, and then when they hit the mark, have the board meeting, and a simple letter goes out, you're off. But you that, have to that, provide them 30 days notice that the obligation is due. So you can't send that 30-day notice until you until hit your threshold. Until it's, right. Yeah, right. Once you hit the 1,000. Right. Okay, but how so does could that be. mesh with the whole thing that the statute says that payments are due without demand? Mm -hmm. I mean, where does that play into that? This, that's, or does it? That's for collection of the debt, but this is this, a voting right is a pertinence to the unit. It's a very yeah. important right. Although, frankly, most people say, fine, take, you know, take away my voting rights. I don't vote anyway. 
So it's not gonna, it's not a powerful tool, yeah. but you're but you're taking a prop like a, a right that bundles with the unit away. That's different than just simply demanding an unpaid assessment. Separate separate uh, issues. Going on what Jay was saying too, I mean, if you have a clear violation uh, of the covenant, as opposed to finding the way more powerful stick, is arbitration, because attorneys' fees are suddenly triggered. I mean. I completely agree with what Jay was saying about finding it's a headache, it causes so many problems, there's so many angles that they can be challenged on. Um, but like what you all were saying, finding is an important tool in the tool belt. A lot of times what I find that finding is good because if you're going to proceed, let's say with the homeowners association, if your association has approved the fine, it goes before the finding committee, they've approved it, you have now money that's owed and if you proceed with pre-suit um, mediation if you're an HOA, or you proceed with arbitration, you have a fine now that's owed too that you can use as leverage. That's found money. That's not something that the association's expecting in its budget to receive before the end of the year. So if you can go into that mediation and the owner says, okay, I'll agree to paint my house the right color, then you, out of the goodness of your heart and your clients, can sit there and say, okay, we'll waive the fine if you do that. And you have some money to play with and it kind of adds more leverage and it's just a windfall. If you were to get that fine money, great, you weren't expecting it. But if not, you have something that's leverage. Sure, it's, yeah. Pressure on. Sure, it's leverage. If you have a perfect case yeah. that, that is airtight, <laughs> and I mean airtight, I mean, there's there's just nothing wrong with it. Then I, I'd the agree with that, but otherwise I wouldn't do it. The process to go through the finding thing is difficult. It is difficult. Because yeah. you can't get people to be on the finding committee because they don't right. want a target on their head. They're yeah. scared somebody's going to you know, slash their tires. And then it's the 14 days and the appeal process. None of my clients, I've tried it for years. Yeah. I don't think we ever have had a successful finding going through. Well, I did have one at HOA that had some successful. I think because people just didn't want to come to the committee right. and, and appeal it. They said, okay, I'll you whatever it was. So I find it very, very difficult. And I still do it. I still drive around and do these covenant things. But I tell them, guys, this is really a, you're barking up a tree. You know, the raccoons out of the tree, so mm -hmm. let it go. But on the other hand, and if the association <clears throat> membership knows that they're going to get a letter That's that right. says they're in violation and there's the possibility of a fine, and you just levy one, one fine, all of a sudden you'll find 90% of the people will find a way to be in compliance. So it's a valuable tool because the, the, the boards, let's face it, you know, we're talking $50 for a fine or $100 for a fine, you know, even if it's a continuing fine, you know, so the dog poops, okay, that's one $100 fine. If you can document whose dog it is and when it happened and all that other stuff. They got a picture of it. Okay, but the bottom line is once you levy that fine and it becomes known in the neighborhood, all of a sudden everybody's got doggy bags and they pick up after their dog. Hmm. Let me give you a fine tip that's abused. You cannot levy a fine, for, assuming it's not the kind for non-payment, what actually goes to a committee hearing. You cannot have the committee vote today. Okay, $100 today, but beginning tomorrow and every day after today, another $50 ticks or $100 ticks. No one got due process. There's a case, there's a, a city case on this. You cannot find for, it, it, for future conduct. Just like if you go to a traffic hearing and you're guilty, the judge can't say now, if, I, if you're caught uh, speeding in the next 90 days, automatically you're going to be fined. So it's the conduct of the hearing backward, not beginning the next day thereafter. And that's a very big abuse on how fine committees work. That's a fine tip. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Oh. Oh. <laughs> All right, moving away from fines. Financial reports are next. There weren't big changes in that. The main one affects smaller associations. Uh, it used to be that if you were an association with um, fewer than 50 units, or if you were a homeowners association with fewer than 50 parcels, regardless of your revenues, you could, uh, for your annual financial reporting, you could just do a simple re uh, report of cash receipts and expenditures. Uh, that was taken away, so now uh, your, the requirements for, fi for financial reportings uh, completely depend on revenues. So if you have an association, 
with revenues of less than $150,000, you can still do a report of cash receipts and revenues, and it's unchanged. If you have, that's unchanged, but so just get the 50 unit thing out of your head. That's, that's gone. So, um, for example, and I think this will affect a lot of units, or rather condominiums. If you have a condominium, you know, with 40 units, $400 per month uh, assessments that uh, they could have previously done a report of cash receipts and expenditures, but now they will have to do a uh, compiled financial statements, which I'm sure Bill knows what that is. I don't know what it is. <laughs> um, the other thing on financial statements uh, concerns requests for, re for financial s statements. Uh, if an owner makes a request for a financial statement and they've always been entitled to get these financial statements for a request, and if the association does not turn that over within five business days, uh, then they can report it to the division, to the state of Florida, and then the state of Florida will write you a letter, write the association letter, uh, requesting that, they, that the association submit the financial report to them within five days. If the association still does not comply, then um, the association will thereafter be prohibited from waiving their level of financial reporting. And as many of you may, may recall, there's a mechanism where associations can undergo a membership vote to lower their level of financial reporting. So it's kind of a collective punishment for everybody, for the association not, not providing financial reports. And since this is an official record, criminal penalties you got it. going back to the yeah. other statute. Exactly. I have a question regarding this. We, we go through this every single If year. the state attorney takes it up. Sure. I mean, that's, that's right. something to, you know, to keep in mind with the criminal penalties. The state attorney has to do that. We go through this every year. Sure. The difference of a financial report versus an audit or a review from the CPA. We have no problem if somebody asks for a financial report for the end of year. So in December, you know, in January, we can give it to them. However, the CPAs a lot of times don't get us the documents back within 120 days. So have we complied with their request if we give them an end of year financial versus a mm -hmm. copy of the review or a no. copy of the the audit? As opposed to the financial report, you mean? Uh -huh. No, I don't think so. Uh -huh. But realize something. It says financial report. But you can't provide something you don't have. Yeah. Very yeah. true. So if the accountant's the holdup, and no accountant in this room will, but I've had a case where the accountant was deletory, and the association had to pay a fine, because it was the second time around, the same accountant, one year after the next, and they got the money out of the accounting company. But if you don't have it, you can't provide what you absolutely do not have. I, don't, I think that's the uh, help here. Mm -hmm. But you may not have the right accountant if you're having to bug that person beyond the, the due date. All right, moving on to a big topic, estoppel certificates. Now, I think this was a good change. It codified exactly what was to be, what is to be in estoppel certificates. This now applies to condominiums and homeowners associations. Um, first thing it did, it reduced the time frame to, to turn around a stop a request from 15 to 10 days. Um, and uh, and it, in your outline, I've listed everything that has to be in, uh, in the estoppel certificate. So you can follow along with that. Um, Pretty self-explanatory, or I'm sure there's some things that some Question people will said, find. Sure. Who's responsible for preparing the estoppel with all this shit? <laughs> well, in other words, is it the management company ultimately responsible for providing all this listed here, or is it the title company who sends us the estoppel? No, 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 no. not the title company. Okay. Not the title company. If a title company asks you for for an estoppel request, the first thing you should do is get authorization from the owner. And in my opinion, the estoppel request that these time frames, and some attorneys might disagree, are not triggered until you get a proper request. I get requests from people, I don't know who they are. 
And we see that they're not even a unit owner. They're just some interested buyer. So the first step should be, well, give us written authorization from the owner, whether it's a bank or the, or, or the actual owner. So That's what so I do. So when we get an estoppel request from a title company, that doesn't trigger this 10 days? I think it does if it's purported to be on behalf of the owner. Right. Okay. I wouldn't take a chance yeah, to try to I agree hide your head yeah. in the sand on that yeah. one. Well, so what, but if a stranger, not a title company, just some person randomly, oh, yeah. which does happen sometimes, yeah. could be a parent. No, you've got to get that owner's yeah. consent. Yeah. Well, so I think Rich's question is, are we supposed to concoct some form, all of us in this room, and every association management company and association in the state concoct independent forms that meet all this criteria, or are, is the title company industry going to concoct this form? No, or should no. we ask Don't rely on the title company. attorneys that we love and trust, everybody wink, Okay, to concoct such a form that we can use to comply with this. I think that's the best idea. Yeah. Which she one? Do you get, you, she has a few questions. The, the attorney one the attorney. is the best idea. <laughs> but, but here's the question, though. If, yeah. if you're doing this one task only for a management company, are you violating the provision that an association and the management company cannot have the same lawyer? I would or if it's a one task only, I see what you mean. Are, okay. uh, that's a question I'm uh, that my office is yeah. addressing. Uh, I mean, the theory is you can't serve two masters properly. This is not a two master situation. This is one master with different pieces. But you think that would be a, a prohibition? I think the better practice would be for the management company to say, "We received this estoppel request for this association, your client, attorney." So can you send us the form that we would need for the client? So well, so you're asking for the client. Yeah. So in seeing that would be the format that I would recommend that such a form be concocted, i.e. SCCA would be a great format for attorneys to provide this to the boards of directors, which are the membership of SCCA, and any business affiliate members that happen to be management companies might appropriate it. That would be my suggestion. Now, by the way, there's at least, and I'll, I'll be quiet after this, I don't want to keep you from your presentation, but there's three questions, in my opinion, should be answered only by an attorney with a law license in Florida. And that deals with certain questions about is there a capital contribution, transfer fee, et cetera. Some associations charge them by way of rule. That's unenforceable. I agree with that. So yeah. th that's, you all as managers shouldn't be making that guess. Also, is there board approval required? And it says do the rules. Well, that's not usually where it is. So I think I would answer the rules and the condo documents. And is there a right of first refusal? If anything, these are the three questions that council should be answering that's document specific. And once you get it once, you never have to need it again. And then you prepare the other information that really you know that we don't know. But a, but a lawyer provided form to the association as a client is probably, you're thinking, is the better way to go? Right. Yeah. To the association. It's like you were right. saying, some of the management. questions yeah. at least require some degree of interpretation as at least the Florida Supreme Court rules right. it as, with respect to management. Yeah. So and then that, I think that would be a two-part estoppel, one that we would prepare as a management company on the items that we could address, and one that you gentlemen or ladies would prepare? I, I, I've done it, I'll give you a little trick away. I do it as an exhibit. Okay. And I I've asked to prepare the exhibit where the management company feels that the management company has a handle on the rest. Because you know all the other answers more than we do. Now if it's in collection, we should be doing the estoppel letter, but then there's certain things we need from you that we wouldn't know about, like insurance contact information. So I've done an exhibit on the other way so we're kind of a joint um, yeah, I think, effort. Yeah. I think I do the same thing. I usually don't do estoppels. I'm usually asked for a payoff. It, 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 Is there it, a difference, if, really? If, I think there is. So I mean, if, if it's just a payoff, I mean, if I have someone in collections and that owner calls me up and says, attorney, please give me a payoff of what I owe. 
and I give them a payoff, what and I charge my payoff. What if a title company's asking? What if there's a, a transaction involved? If they don't use the word estoppel, and they just want how much is owed, I just give them a payoff. Are you okay with that, Sonia? No, I, no? I, I think they both go hand in hand. I think the statute's calling, and again, just to clarify for everyone, this applies to 718 condos, 719 co-ops, and 720 homeowner associations, so then everyone's clear. The, the statute calls it an estoppel certificate, and that's to provide all of the information, so the totality of it. So I agree that we're providing a two-part process. We're providing the payoff information, what's owed on the unit, and we're also working with you all to determine the answers to a lot of these questions that we're not going to know the answer to specifically. The way that we're handling it in our firm, if we get the request first, then we're letting you know, hey, we just received the request. Here's our form that you were talking about. Here's the form. That please fill out the answers that you can. We'll help you with the ones that you need assistance with because right now, July 1st wasn't that long ago, so we're just starting to get these post-July 1st mm -hmm. requests coming in. Before July 1st, we were taking the position, well, this was a request prior to the new statute, so we're not necessarily required to comply with the new laws yet. Now, pretty much, we're well into all the requests that we're working on are after July 1st. So we're including all of that information with the estoppel, whether we're attaching our payoff and the estoppel certificate from you filled out that we've sent you, or we work with some management companies that already have this form filled out and they send it to us because you all received the request first. You know, I think all of us are flexible just depending on who you mm -hmm. work with. I guess my confusion comes in because for 12 years, I've gotten the estoppel request from the closing agent and it's their form that we It's their form. No, no, but if because they're not going to, but here's the thing. Don't confuse the lender questionnaire. No, no, I'm not. I'm not. Okay, no, that's a whole different ballgame. No, I know what you're saying, and it says a stopple form on it. Yeah, I know what you're saying. I ignore theirs. Yeah, it's not compliant. So remember, some of them are still going to provide you that form, but you all have to make sure, and we need to make sure, that if you're just going to fill out their form, that it includes all of these statutory items. So, so if it doesn't have all of them, you what still do I need to it? include it. Send it back. Do your own form. You're better off sending back your own. But do you, but do you, do you think a payoff is different than an estoppel certificate? I think all of it together is an estoppel. But my question is, if they just own a calls, what do I owe to settle my account? No. That's a payoff. That's not but do you payoff. see a different, oh, so there has to be some title transfer or refinancing going on Correct. to trigger this, you think? It doesn't say that, but you think that's the context. That's my context because the reason we're providing violations is so we can tell the person who's about to buy the property, hey, you know, X, Y, and Z is not in compliance. These letters have been sent. We're letting them know all of the information that legally we would be stopped from going after <coughs> the new owner for if we didn't notify them ahead of time. Now, so open violations don't, like the, open violations are ones that are going to continue on past title transfer, not one that has, has it will die at, at closing. And be careful if you put something down that may not be legitimate, but you want to put it anyway and the buyer gets cold feet and goes away, I actually have one of those matters going on right now that's tortious interference. Yeah. Be well, careful. So and it's the difference with, with the payoff and the estoppel might be the contributions and the and the um, right of first refusal would definitely be a trigger as to which is which, right? Because you're not going to get a payoff that asks me, oh, by the way, what's do, do you know, if I don't pay this off, is there a right of first refusal? That's not part of the of payoff, right? Right. Mm -hmm. But you would have to respond to it if there was a transaction. So now there's a cap to provide this information. Mm -hmm. All of this information, regardless of how many sources it comes from, there's a $250 cap right. to provide it plus the rush fee, plus the delinquent account fee. I get this request and I have a charge to provide 98% of this information. If it's in collections, I'm gonna then say to you, I need this information. Is your law firm going to charge us to provide that piece of the information? We've been talking about understanding that. Understanding we can't exceed the 250, or is there something else you can come up with and say, well, we had a closing file fee that we're adding on at the end. And when you send it back to us, it's got that built into it. I'll help you on our others. I think it's risky. The, uh, yeah, we've, we've all we've all talked talking about. about. Um, I think all of us have taken this into our perspective because we all work with a, a bunch of different management companies, and I know a lot of management companies are just upping their fees to to the four hundred because you're actually if it's delinquent now, you're able to charge the four hundred. 
So I think um, what I have seen on a real estate attorney listserv that um, we're a part of, there are attorneys around the state of Florida who are collecting information on all the HOAs and management companies and attorneys that are charging more than the $400 combined. And they're creating a list to go to the attorney general to turn everyone in. Already? They started this? No, I think within days. Within, I mean, we just got this email last week. So this is concerning. So this is a great forum for this organization because we all get to get together and talk about these issues outright and try to discuss the best way to handle it. But now that we know that's out there, none of us want to be penalized through either you know the state state attorney's office or the attorney general. However, they're going to handle you know getting us in trouble. So we've got to wrap this up. But I think it's a risky move yeah. to to charge four hundred dollars for an estoppel and then uh, have the attorney charge say one fifty for his part of. Part of the estoppel, which may be the payoff, and then call that something else. What if it's called attorney's fees? Call that attorney's fees. I think that's risky. So what we're working on is combining it. So I your think, fees, yeah. you know, 175 and our fee makes up the difference. Something to get us to the 400 if it's a delinquent amount where it's fair between the two companies. That's what we're open to because I think this is, I mean, we have to be honest here. It's a legitimate moneymaker for management companies. It's a legitimate moneymaker yeah. for law firms. But we both have now, because of the information that's provided, there's a lot of work that goes into this from both sides that I think we need to figure out a balance for. I know Seth has to finish up. Um, yeah, we got to finish we, up. We're here to stay sure. and chat and talk about things. So um, for official records, real quick. The scope of official records has been expanded just by a little bit. It adds bids and materials for equipment and services to the official records. Um, it also, the authorized persons to inspect official records has been expanded to include uh, authorized representatives of, of the owner. Now, in my opinion, if you had someone come in with a proper power of attorney, they should be entitled to inspect the official records e even before this change. But the statute also expanded, now allows renters to, I believe, just it's inspect limited. the bylaws and rules. Yeah. Not the yeah. deck and articles, though. No. <laughs> it says bylaws and rules. Now, I, I don't get what, I don't get that either. Non-association attorneys drafting. Yeah, we don't get that either. Uh, so, you know, who knows what will happen. Websites are a big issue. If you're an association with 150 or more units, you're, you're going to have to have a website now. Um, and that's, and that's going to have to be up and working by July 1st, 2018. So you've got one year to get that going. Um, under the management company's website. That website has got to be, I have some notes on that. Because I think they. I don't see any issue with it being posted by the management company as long as it's going to have that information, the address, how to request the estoppel, and also have copies of the official records. Um, right. We and all post that. There's no problem with that as long as it's for the individual association. Right. Okay, here and, it is. And make sure it's not, um, it's not a public website. Well, that it's not something that other associations, right. owners can get. It's a protected, right. Exactly. right. So, so they have to log in to get it. Right, it's got to be, it's got to be, it, be secure so non-owners can't get into it. Not anymore. Not the not website is, should not be should not be accessible to the but public. But the part that does need to be public is where they can request an estoppel yeah. from. That yeah. still does need to be Good public. point. Yep. So, just so here it is. The website must be an independent website owned and operated by the association. So that's what it, that's what the statute says. It can't. It says owned and operated by the association or a site operated by a third party provider. I don't. I don't know if I'd go there. I think a third party provider is is like the hosting company. Is the internet? I I don't know if they consider a third party provider on a website as a management company. It might have to be a disputed item because we have a, a website software that is unique to each own, each entity. So who owns the website? Well, actually, we own the website, but we have a subscription software that provides individual websites to, all they have to do is go to but our you website. Don't, but the ownership is not the association. That could be a catch. 
Well, well, but think the software is owned by another company. Think, so think about the risk you have, though, of hosting that website. First of all, it's arguable whether it violates the statute. And do you really want to be responsible for that association in light of what the statute says now about sure. websites? I don't know. It's your decision. That's I mean, that's why I was questioning. That's a, that, so that's a, I wouldn't do it. Yeah, briefly, and I know you have to go because you're running up sure, on time. That's fine. But you promised Lynn that you would go real briefly on what points in this affect HOAs yeah. as well as the yeah. condos. Yeah. Two more points. First, arbitration. There was a little change in that. Um, not a lot. It just says that the DDPR may now appoint full time attorneys to be arbitrators instead of shall. Um, and then the DVPR also expanded on the qualifications for arbitrators. I think in, in the past there were some complaints over arbitration cases. Um, the other, the last point I want to make is over termination. I'm getting more and more requests for termination of especially s smaller condominiums. Kind of a complex task. Um, but it, it, for optional termination, it increases the threshold from 80 to 90 percent. So instead of 80 percent of the unit owners approving of the termination, now 90 percent of the total voting interest must approve of the termination, and it lowers the threshold for a unit owner to block the termination. It used to be that if 10 percent voted against terminating, then, th th then it wasn't going to happen. That's been lowered to 5 percent. As far as the things that apply to HOAs, estoppels, so that whole section on estoppels that's right in that handout, where that's the one thing where I put everything in the statute for you. And you know, really, the, the statute has almost done the form for you. Um, uh, the, so estoppels, financial reporting, meaning that, that point about 50 or fewer, fewer units, that also applies to 50 or fewer parcels for HOAs. Uh, and the provision on requests to review financial reporting also applies to, to HOAs, and that's in your outline, where uh, that the, the association can lose their ability to decrease their level of financial reporting. And uh, there were some things in bills that they wanted to be in HOAs that, that, that didn't make it there. And that concludes the presentation. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.